Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the book of Psalms. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. You can turn in your Bibles to Psalm number 60. It is my intention to look at Psalm 60 and 61 and 62 tonight but not necessarily in that order. We're going to look at Psalm 60 and Psalm 62 because the language is so similar, and then we'll go back and pick up Psalm 61. None of these three are particularly long, and none of them are particularly complicated. So we should be able to get through all three of them this evening without too much trouble. Psalm 60 The prescript to it says, for the choir director, according to Shushan Eduth, which means the lily of understanding, a miktam of David, we've seen that word a few times, a contemplative or a teaching type psalm. In this case, we know that it is a didactic psalm. It's meant to teach something because it says a miktam of David to teach. When he struggled with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. Now, whenever we have seen these kinds of prescripts before, we have gone back into the Old Testament and read the history behind these Psalms. The problem with this one is There is no direct reference in the Old Testament. It may be something that was written in the annals of the kings, which we don't have anymore. There is a reference to a battle in the Valley of Salt. And you can go back and look at it. It is in uh, 2 Samuel. But 2 Samuel 8 is a listing of David's conquests and how God helped him to accomplish these conquests, whereas Psalm 60 is David asking for God's help because it is a time when he struggled with Aram Naharaim and with Aram Zobah, and then Joab returned and smote 12,000 of Edom in the Valley of Salt. What you're going to see is the reference to the Valley of Salt back in 2 Samuel 8, Verse 13, so David made a name for himself when he returned from killing 18,000 Arameans in the Valley of Salt. So the numbers are different, and it's David who does it, even though sometimes David conquering through Joab, his general, would still be counted as a victory for David, but the numbers are decidedly different. The only thing that connects these two passages is that they took place in the Valley of Salt. So I don't believe that this particular psalm is directing us back to the bit of history that we find in 2 Samuel 8, because, as I said, it is a listing of David's triumphs, and the psalm is about a time when David was struggling 
with his enemies against him. What we're going to see from this psalm, what we're really going to see from all three of these psalms tonight, what we can draw from it theologically, is that David had the same concept of God's sovereignty that we have here today. In other words, we've been talking a lot as we were speaking on Sunday mornings about theodicy. I was demonstrating that God is responsible for not only the good things that happen in life, but he's also responsible for the bad things that happen. It is a very common way of thinking about God for people to say, well, when good things happen, when blessings come my way, that's God. But then when the bad things happen, that's Satan. Uh, that's, that's demons. That's something about That's not God. David's declaration in this psalm is that it is God who was angry at Israel, turned his back on them, and that's the reason that they were being defeated. And so David is calling God to return. After all, God has made promises to Israel and to David's posterity. And based on what God has already said, David is reminding him and saying, we're your people. You need to restore us. You need to defend us. But David understands that both the good and the bad are a result of God. So even though God may use Satan to accomplish these bad things that happen in life, it is still not Satan's doing. It's not (laughs) Satan's decision. We see that everywhere in the Bible. We see it in the book of Job, at the beginning of the book of Job, when God told Satan, well, you can touch his body, but you can't take his life. God limits the activity of Satan. We see it also in the New Testament with the demoniac at the Gadarene, when Jesus drove the demon out, legion, drove him out, and they saw the herd of pigs, swine, and they wanted to take the pigs, but first they had to ask Jesus because he had the authority. So they asked him if they could take the pigs. So we see this kind of sovereign authority over Satan throughout the Bible, and yet this idea that good things come from God and bad things come from Satan continues rather pervasively in modern Christendom. But the Bible, and especially David here tonight, is going to give credit to God for the fact that bad things are happening. So we have to adjust our thinking about God to recognize his sovereignty over everything that happens in life. Thank him for the good and thank him for the bad. Because ultimately, the bad, just like I've said so many times here, God knows that if he puts trouble in your life, you're going to run to him because you've got nowhere else to go. It's exactly what happens to David here. David ends up turning to God yet again because things are going bad, because things are going difficult. So I didn't just develop that thinking about God out of whole cloth. I didn't just make it up one day. It is what we see over and over in the Bible. So Psalm 60, starting at verse 1, David declares, O God... Thou hast rejected us, and you have broken us, is the NASB rendering. In the Hebrew, it's broken out on us. He's saying bad things are happening to us, and we realize that that is the result of your anger breaking out on us, and you've rejected us, and you have been angry. Oh, restore us. Thou has made the land, 
That word can be the land or it can be the earth underneath us. It's the place where we stand. You've made it to quake and you've split it open. So heal its breaches, the broken parts. If you live in a walled city, the worst thing that can happen is for your enemies to breach your wall. What that means is that there's a break in the wall, a hole in the wall. And so David is saying that the land itself has been under such persecution at this point that it's like an earthquake that has broken down the breaches. And he describes it as tottering, like ready to fall. So heal its breaches, for it totters. It's ready to collapse. Thou hast made thy people experience hardship. Boy, that's a really difficult theology to preach these days. Because <laughs> people want to believe God has made you to be blessed all the time. God has made you richly favored, and everywhere you go, you're blessed and a blessing to people. Best life now. Yeah, right, exactly. Best life now. But David says, you, God, have made your people experience hardship. And thou hast given us wine to drink that makes us stagger. Basically, what he's saying is, we're under so much difficulty right now that we're like drunk men walking through the streets because we've just been blindsided by what has happened to us. And so it's like you've given us wine to drink and made us stagger about. But then he remembers in verse 4, he also remembers that God has made promises to these very people. God has made promises to Judah. God has made promises to Jerusalem. God has even made promises to the northern tribes, to Ephraim. God has already declared that these are his chosen people, that he has chosen from all the other peoples on the earth. And so David refers to those promises as a banner. Now, we, since we're not usually marching into battle with our banners, we forget what a banner really does. But in Israel, when they would gather by tribes or when they would gather in quarters, three tribes apiece, They would always have banners that identified who they were, what tribe they were, or what gathering of three tribes they were. And sometimes, in order to establish that a land or an area belongs to you, you would put your banner up on a high hill so that everybody could see that banner. And that was a way of establishing, we own this, we rule this area. And so that was an insignia of ownership, of rulership of a gathering of the people. So David says, we have this banner from God. We have this establishment where God says, these are my people. So he refers to that in verse 4 and says, you have given a banner to those who fear you. You've already established that you own us. In a moment, he's going to elucidate greater on what he means by this banner and on God's declarations of ownership of Israel. And that then David is praying back to God to say, you should defend us, you should preserve us. After all, who are we? We're yours. You've given a banner to those who fear thee that it may be displayed because of the truth. Think about that that thy beloved may be delivered, save with thy right hand, and answer us. 
really fascinating that David recognizes, firstly, that it's God that brought the trouble. And it's God that did it because God is angry with us, he said. You've broken out on us. You've rejected us. You've allowed us to go through the turmoil that we're going through right now. And yet, you've made us these promises. And so because you're the God who has promised us that we are going to be your people, I'm going to pray that back to you and ask you to also deliver us. The very one who is harming us, I'm asking to heal us. The very one who has brought us the trouble is the only one who can save us. Thou hast given a banner to those who fear thee, that it may be displayed because of your truth, that thy beloved may be delivered, save with thy powerful hand, thy right hand, and answer us. And now he's going to talk about these promises from God. God has spoken in his holiness, in his separateness, in his own unique righteousness. God has already spoken promises to us like, I will exalt or I will celebrate, I will be happy And I will portion out Shechem, and I will measure out the valley of Sukkoth. These are areas of Palestine. And God gave it to them, and he celebrated the fact that he gave it to them. And he exalts, and he portions out Shechem, and he measures out the valley of Sukkoth. And God has said, Gilead is mine, and Manasseh is mine. And then the northern and the southern tribes... Ephraim also is the helmet of my head or the protection of my head. And Judah is my lawgiver. Judah is my scepter. That's perfectly in keeping with the promise that Jacob, Israel, made when he leaned on his staff on his deathbed and prophesied what things are going to happen to the 12 tribes as the years go by. And he distinguished Judah and said, that the lawgiver, Shiloh, was going to come out of Judah and that the scepter and lawgiving was never going to depart from Judah. David is saying the exact same thing here. The land is mine, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, Ephraim is the helmet of my head, Judah is my scepter. And so God has made all these promises of relationship and restoration and protection and salvation to the people of Israel because they all belong to him. But in contrast, the Moabites, the enemies of Israel, are like a cheap bowl you wash in. And actually, that can be uh, read a couple of different ways. Uh, None of them are good. It, It means a basin that you use for dirty things. He says, Moab is my wash bowl. And over Edom... I shall throw my shoe. We don't have a sense of that anymore. It's a way of saying, I reject you. And so God has thrown his shoe, according to David, over Edom and over Philistia. Because it says, shout loud, O Philistia, all the Philistines, because of me, because of God. So the contrast is huge. God has spoken in his holiness He has celebrated and exalted 
that he has handed out the lands of Shechem and he's measured out the valley of Sukkoth because the people that are his are Gilead and Manasseh. Ephraim is the protection of his head. Judah is his lawgiver, is his scepter. But Moab is my dirty washbowl and I throw my shoe over Edom. So shout out, shout in pain, shout as you're running away, O Philistia, because of me. Who will bring me into the besieged city? This is David now saying, okay, these are the promises you've made, God. You have singled us out. You have designated us as your people. And I'm expecting you now to deliver me. I'm expecting you to help me because we are your people. Who will bring me into the besieged city? And who will lead me to Edom? Hast not thou thyself, O Elohim, rejected us? And wilt thou not go forth with our armies, O God? O give us help against the adversary. For deliverance by man is vain, is futile. David realizes, I can't do this myself. It doesn't matter what armies, what captains, what horses I have. It doesn't matter how strong I think I am within myself. Only you are going to be able to deliver us. And I'm trusting you to deliver us because of the things you have already said. You've already made promises to us. We are your people. You have already declared that. You take joy over us. Therefore, deliverance by any man is vain through God. We shall do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. So a remarkable statement of faith on David's part. He's at a point of agonizing. He's at a point where he seems to be losing this war. The prescript to it, he even says that it's when he was struggling with Aram Naharim, and Aram Zoba, and then Joab returned, and then killed 12,000 in the Valley of Salt. So this is a time of warfare, and David recognizes that Israel is not consistently winning. And so he deduces from that that God is angry in not giving them continuous victories. And yet, the very same God who is bringing this trouble on them is the God that David is driven to, to go say to that very God, but we're your people, deliver us. Men can't help us. You're the only one who's going to give us victory over our adversaries. I got nobody but you, even though you're the one that's bringing the trouble. It's all you. And so if it is God who is in charge of both the trouble and the victory, then whatever happens in your life is happening at the hands of an absolutely sovereign God who has purpose to both of those things. Now look at Psalm 62, because it almost picks up right where Psalm 60 left off. (coughs) David made the declaration, through God we're going to do valiantly. Deliverance by men is vain. It's God who will tread down our adversaries. Psalm 62 is for the choir director, according to Jaduthan. It is a psalm of David, and it starts, My soul waits in silence for God only. From him is my salvation. You could put that right on the end of Psalm 60. 
For deliverance by man is vain. Through God we will do valiantly, and it is he who will tread down our adversaries. My soul waits in silence for God alone. For from him is my salvation. He only is my rock, my fortress. He alone is my salvation, my stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. How long will you assail a man? This is now David speaking to people generally, the sinners of the world. How long will you assail a man that you may murder him, all of you? You're like a leaning wall, like a tottering fence. In other words, you're not upright and you're going to fall down. They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in falsehood. They bless with their mouth, but inwardly they curse Selah. So David is describing the condition of the people around him. Because human beings are sinful. Human beings are self-serving. Human beings are not going to rise above their own character and nature. And they do things like assailing other people just so that they can, if that's for me, I'm busy. They do things like assailing other men. They kill other people, but they're going to fall down. They're going to topple. And the only reason that they get together, the only reason that they counsel together is to thrust somebody down from their high position. David is speaking from a high position. And so he is saying that some of his counselors are counseling him with lies for the sole purpose of eventually bringing him down. They have counseled only to thrust him down from his high position. They're happy in their falsehood, in their lies. They delight in falsehood. And they say good things, flattering words when they're looking you in the face. They bless with their mouth. But their intentions are really to curse you. So then, yes, we can agree with David that deliverance by any man is just vanity. Verse 5 says, my soul, wait in silence for God only. For my hope is from him. I find that really interesting. I mean, you would expect David to say, my hope is in him. But my hope also is derived from him. His promises, his word, his power is what gives us hope. My hope is from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation and my stronghold. I shall not be shaken. It's the same thing he said to open the psalm. He is repeating the same idea yet again for emphasis that God alone is the rock, the secure place, the stronghold, the salvation, so that ultimately David's not going to be shaken. Verse 7, on God my salvation and my glory all rest. The rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Think about that. Okay, not only has David declared this, trust in God at all times, O people. Whatever you're going through, trust in God, regardless of your circumstances. 
But he demonstrated that in Psalm 60. In Psalm 60, he was saying, you've turned from us. You've broken out on us. You're angry. I pray that you'll restore us. And yet, it was that very same God who was angry with them that David turned to and trusted to restore his people regardless of his circumstances. So he showed that kind of faith in Psalm 60. He showed that faith in action, and then he spells out the theology of it here in Psalm 62, that God is salvation and glory. God is the rock of your strength. He is your place of refuge. So trust in him regardless of your circumstances. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Men of low degree, now he's returning to his description of human beings, and he's about to say, it doesn't matter if they're of low degree or if they're of high degree, their problem is all the same, which is their ego, their self-sufficiency, their lack of trust and confidence in God. Men of low degree are only vanity. Men of low degree are just full of their own ego, their own pride, full of themselves. And men of high degree, men of rank, are a lie. So you can see why David would say, you just can't trust people to deliver you, to protect you, to be the source of your salvation. If God is not for you, no amount of human help is going to deliver you. Men of low degree are only vanity, and men of rank are a lie. This is a very funny description of them. In the balances or on the scale, if you put them on one side of the scale and there's nothing on the other side, you would expect the side that they're on to go down because they're the side that has weight. David reverses that idea and says, in the balances, they go up. They are together lighter than breath. There's no heft to them. There's nothing to them. You can't trust them. Do not trust in oppression. And do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. So here David is giving the instruction. The thing that the world wants most is money and power. Money and power, the ability to control other people, that to this very moment is what motivates the people in power to do the things that they do. And so David is saying, even if you are able to oppress people, if you have power and authority over people, don't trust in that. And don't think that just because you're gaining wealth for yourself, even through robbery, That is not enough to protect you. Do not vainly hope in robbery. And if your riches do increase, either through chicanery or even through some business venture, if your riches increase, don't set your heart upon those. Your riches can't help you. Your authority can't help you. Even if you're a man of high degree or low degree, the ability to oppress other people and control other people, none of that can ultimately help you once you have to stand before God, the judge of all ages. None of your money, none of your power, none of your authority can save you. Do not trust in oppression. 
do not vainly hope in robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart upon them. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this. That's an old Hebraism for emphasis saying, oh, it's been said more than once. This is something that should be planted in your memory. Once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power, authority, dominion belongs to God. And loving kindness belongs to you, O Lord, for thou dost recompense a man according to his work. So God is going to judge. And no amount of worldly authority or rank or power or money or the ability to lord it over other people, just because you think you're secure in this lifetime, you're still going to stand before the judge. Mm -hmm. And the judge is going to judge you based on these very actions. I mean, look at how he has described people. They assail men so that they can murder men. They're like a leaning wall or a tottering fence that's going to fall down. They take counsel, especially with the king, only to thrust him down from his high position. They delight in lying and falsehood. And even though they bless with their mouth when they're face to face with you, inwardly they curse. Men of low degree are only vanity. Men of rank are a lie. And in the balances they go up. They are together lighter than breath. And they oppress people and they rob people and their riches increase. And then they trust in that. But God has spoken twice. I've heard this, that power belongs to God. Loving kindness belongs to God, which he's going to give to those people whom he loves. But he is also a judge. Everyone is going to stand before that judge. And God is going to recompense every man for his actions, for his works. And that takes us to Psalm 61. Psalm 61 is a prayer to God. This is David declaring his trust in God, his reliance on God, and his expectation that God is going to care for him, deliver him, protect him. It's for the choir director on a stringed instrument, a psalm of David. Hear my cry or hear my prayer, O God. Give heed to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to thee when my heart is faint. That reference to the end of the earth means if there was a place on earth where you could get as far away from heaven as possible, David is saying, even if I am as far from heaven as I can get, when I reach the end of myself, when my heart is faint, I have nowhere else to go. I'm still going to call to you. From the end of the earth, I call to thee. When my heart is faint, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Anybody want to sing? (laughs) To the rock that is higher than I. For thou hast been a refuge for me. A tower of strength against the enemy. So let me dwell in your presence. Let me dwell in your tabernacle. Let me dwell in your tent forever. 
Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wings, Selah. David watching mother birds protect their baby birds and the way that they would put their wings over their eggs and over their hatchlings. David likens that to the way that God would spread out himself over his people as a protection. It's a very tender image that David draws up here. Because not only does he say that God is a rock and God is a refuge and God is a tower of strength against the enemy, but God is also the one who dwells in his own holy tabernacle where David desires to be forever. And he also wants to take refuge in the place of protection and tenderness and likens God to a mother bird. For thou hast heard my vows, O God, and thou hast given me the inheritance of those who fear thy name. Okay, now earlier we saw that God protects those who fear his name. So he's clearly referring to Israel, but to the faithful within Israel, not to those who are trying to turn against him or take him down. But there are those in Israel who love God, who follow after God's word, who are listening to the prophets, who are trying to keep God's commandments. And God is a protection to those people. And the way that God is protecting those people is that he has given them a faithful king, given them a leader who is a man after God's own heart. And David recognizes that. So he says, you have given me the inheritance of those who fear your name, and you will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. I think at that point, David's making a reference back to the Davidic covenant because he knows that he himself is not going to last many generations. But he knows God has promised him that his house, his heritage, is going to continue for many, many generations until the ultimate king, who's going to have a kingdom that will never end, an everlasting kingdom. And so David can say confidently that God has given him an inheritance of those who are God's people, those who fear his name, and that God is going to prolong the king's heritage, his life, and his years will be as many generations. That heritage, that kingly line, is going to abide before God forever. That's the promise, a forever kingdom, an everlasting kingdom. And so David can say confidently, based on what God has already told him, God's word has already promised him that he is going to have this everlasting heritage. So he can say, you will prolong the king's life. His years will be as many generations. He will abide before God forever. Appoint loving kindness and trust that they may preserve him. Notice again, who does David credit with loving kindness and trust and even preservation? All of those things are in God's hands. David recognizes that the trouble is at God's hands. The deliverance is at God's hands. The faith and the trust are in God's hands. God's loving kindness and even the understanding of God's truth, which he reveals to us, that's all in God's hands. Preservation comes from God. He will abide before God forever, this ultimate king. Appoint loving kindness and truth, apparently, to him so that they may preserve him. 
so that loving kindness and truth preserve this ultimate king. And then David says, so I will sing praise to your name forever that I may pay my vows day by day. In other words, I not only am going to praise you with my mouth, I'm not just going to say good things and write good psalms about you, but on a day-to-day basis, I'm going to walk in a way that is a testimony to the things that I proclaim and believe. So those three psalms all kind of fit together. I know I transpose the order a little bit, but when you put them all together, it does create a theology that is very in keeping with what we believe here, that sovereign God is in charge of the good times and the bad times, and that even when you're going through the bad circumstances, you have nowhere else to go but back to God. And even if you're at the furthest corners of the earth, where you feel like you're as far away from heaven as you can get. And I have felt that way sometimes. Even when you're there, David says, call to God. Because God is everywhere. He hears you wherever you are. And even when you feel far away from him, separated from him, going through the troubles of this life, the trials, the difficulties, he is still the one who is faithful and loyal. His loving kindness never ends. And therefore, you can trust him through all the circumstances of life. That's what David says. That's what the New Testament authors keep saying. You'd think at some point we'd get the lesson. You know, we haven't said goodbye to the Internet congregation in a very long time. Perhaps we should do that tonight. Say goodbye to the Internet congregation. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace midweek message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.